Here we are now with episode number 16 of our series, You Are the Chosen One. So last episode we had a, what do we call, an interpretation of the opening statements for the book, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, through a pre-modern lens with the benefit of our now postmodern perspective and there were a few other quick things in the opening that I wanted to mention before we launch into our plot and one was that the dedication is split in seven ways the dedications for this book is seven ways And the parallel there is, well, there's seven horcruxes. So we could say that each dedication is a part of the author's soul. And the last dedication being for the reader, for the ones who have followed along this far. And then there's another quote, which is simply, it simply says this, J.K. Rowling has asserted her moral rights. And this really sticks out. It's a really jarring sort of, whoa, statement. Or at least it is for me, as someone who knows nothing about J.K. Rowling and is just trying to read a, a nice children's book, I start to think, whoa, what, 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 does, what does moral rights mean? Is this a book on morality? Are these books on morality? Is this book some sort of cultural commentary. And I sort of get a flashback to the opening statement of book one, which is, the Dursleys are absolutely normal, thank you very much, that sort of tone. And it's like when you hear that, you think, well, obviously there's something up with you and you're not normal. And then here we have J.K. Rowling saying, J.K. Rowling, this, this statement, J.K. Rowling has asserted her moral rights. Whoa! It sounds very strong, like, what's been happening to her? What's, have she, what has she been saying outside the confines of these stories? What is the reactions? I get, I get the impression that there's reactions from Harry Potter, cultural reactions, which I'm deeply unaware of, and which would make sense of this quote. Do we have moral rights? Is life a question of morality? And what proportion of morality defines or characterizes our inner world or our perspective or how we relate to each other? These are all huge questions. Huge questions. And something so Small, such a small quote, J.K. Rowling has asserted her moral rights. And as a statement, at the very front of the last book of the most epic series, it, it really packs something. And of course, I don't know what it packs, but I just feel a very strong reaction. And then also it says... In my copy, this book is printed on 30% post-consumer waste pulp that is recycled. 
So I don't know if all books of the Harry Potter print release were in that sort of characteristic, but the, the, the significance there is, well, yes, this book is, the author is, and this story is tied in with the rest of the world. There's a connection between it and how it functions in the real world. And it's going for, well, higher values. Saving the planet, recycling, reducing waste. These are green meme values. They're high values. There's a stab there to... It's one thing to write a story to illustrate higher values. And then it's another thing to actually go about and have that story in a very tangible way, actually expressing it and functioning as it. So my copy is on some recycled paper. So let's get into our plot. Dumbledore is dead. Harry and his friends have worked out that the evil Dark Lord is at full power. And not only that, but they can't just go ahead and kill him. They have to kill his seven bits of soul. So there are seven, seven things they have to do. And also, it has to come to a head because there's a prophecy that Harry and, Dum uh, Harry and Voldemort can't live at the same time. So there's going to be a, a coming to the head. And there's a memoriam for Dumbledore. And in my culture, basically we have a funeral, which for the funerals I've been to has been a lot like a church service. And then there's a wake... And then that's it. And then maybe the, the family has a private thing a week or two afterwards. But I don't know how it is in England. And I don't know how it is in the magical world. And there are many cultures that have different things. There are cultures that have, you know, 90 days or six months or the one year anniversary and they have actual formal ceremonies that are to be done or certain prayers or certain rituals that are to be done when someone dies at different times, different lengths. So the cultural traditions surrounding death and funerals is very rich. But here we find, well, Harry's at the memoriam, which is basically like a wake. And there are all these wizards sitting around talking and saying certain things. And in the book, this is a very rich scene. It's a very complex and Harry's sort of getting whips of different conversations and talking to different people and there are some more obscure characters coming through. And in the movie, well, in the movie at this stage, basically from here on out in the movie, they're, they're struggling just to get the bare plot in because it's so dense. And in the movie, he ends up talking to this lady and she says, Do you, did you really know Dumbledore at all, young man? Sort of like this. But in the book, the, the brilliance of the book is that we get that feeling without having someone actually have to say that to us. And Harry's finding things out about, well, Dumbledore had a brother. Harry never knew that. And Harry's thinking, well, I've never even 
I've never even asked Dumbledore a personal question. The most personal question I asked him was, what do you see in the mirror of Erised? When they were looking at the mirror that shows your deepest desires. Usually it's Dumbledore who's imparting wisdom to Harry. And there's not enough, there's, there's not really space in the, that relationship for, well, sir, can you tell me about yourself? And I think that's probably a staple more generally of the wise old man role type, the position that they're in. It's not very nor- it's not normal for the wise old man to start talking about himself. And we also find out, well, there was this thing with Dumbledore's, I think it was his sister, or maybe his half-sister, and there was an incident where she died. And it comes out that, well, there was some sort of confrontation between Dumbledore and this other wizard, Grindelwald. And it wasn't exactly, it's quite complicated, it's quite shady, because it's a deep backstory. I don't know how far we need to go into it, but Dumbledore's relationship with this wizard, Grindelwald, is, it's complex. It's not exactly that they're enemies, it's more that they're, they're friends at certain times, and they're competitors at other times, and they have different ideas about certain things. And the thing that ties them together, and the thing that starts to bring shade of, of doubt into how good Dumbledore was as a person, which is, which is the fear, which is Harry's worry, or it's the thing that starts to loom for him as he's sitting here in this memoriam, listening to these people talk, he starts to wonder, well, was Dumbledore really a good person? You know, this idol, this hero of his. This wise old man that's shown him so much. And it comes out that the thing that tied Grindelwald and Dumbledore together was their quest for power and their search for power. And this is very important. This is a key statement of all the novels. Because Dumbledore ends up actually still to come in this novel imparting wisdom to Harry in relation to power. And really the wisdom of Dumbledore is that he did search for a certain kind of power. He did have a a lust for power in him. And that brought him to darkness, that brought him to some very terrible things, some complicated things, some very complicated relationships like he had with Grindelwald. And some could say, looking at it, that it was the reason his sister died. We could say that Dumbledore had a turning point when he'd been on this sort of path of finding more power and it had turned out that it had ended in a tragedy so that's some of the things that happens at this memoriam there's there's other things as well
for example, there's this, I think this is in different places in the book as it is to the movie. But Harry notices there's a certain symbol on Luna Lovejoy's father's necklace. And he notices this because Crumb, one of the Triwizard Tournament competitors from the Goblet of Fire, is also there. And he has this very strong reaction to it. Harry notices there's this dynamic, this social dynamic of someone being triggered over in one corner by something someone is wearing over in the other. And Crumb's sort of got this, ooh, like this evil sort of, like it's really, this, this is a bad person. This is a very bad person. I sort of want to go and confront this person. And we have symbols like that in our culture. You can think of the think of the SWAT sticker, the, the the symbol of Nazism. And that symbol has a history, and it hasn't always meant what it means now. But now, Nazism, well, it triggers something because of what it represents, because of what it has surrounding it. So symbols are very powerful. Symbols are very deep and they cut straight to our core beliefs. They cut straight to our core values very quickly. And in this room of the Memoriam of Dumbledore, you can see the differences between the characters illustrated by this one moment when Harry notices Crumb is feeling something ill towards Mr. Lovejoy. Luna Lovejoy's, one of Harry's friend's father's father. And then the other character that comes up is this character, Rita Sika. And she's been in this place, this in this novel, in and out as a journalist. And she sort of had this, she's written some pretty rotten articles about Harry and really stirred up Harry and really not done much for his public reputation or anything like that and really just just caused a whole bunch of head trips like the whole thing of harry's public appearance and how he sees how other people feel about him and think about him well that's just been made worse and worse by these articles that rita Sika has been writing about him and she's got this magic her, her prop is this magic pen which she sort of has following around her and she's done a spell on it or something, which she's invented somehow, which writes for her. And it's, what, what do they call it? The Quick Quills Pen, something like that. But it's basically like writing faster and also really sort of trashy. It's like a gossip sort of trashiness. And, you know, we had this character Lockhart where he was sort of cunning and he was sort of the ladies' man and sort of, building up this public opinion of himself by tricking other wizards or doing memory charms on other wizards. And we mentioned when we were talking about him, well, this would only work with a man. This wouldn't work with a woman. And, and really, to further that, we can say that a woman really isn't as cunning as a man. A woman isn't as devious as a man like Lockhart is. So we can say, well, well, you know, like, let's see both sides of the equation. Like, it's not just men that are cunning and tricky and with their faults. What are the faults of the women? So we've got this 
Rita Seeker character here, and she's like a well, she's like a gossip queen. It's just gossip. It's just chatter, chatter, chatter. And there's a statement there about the immediacy of communication. There's a statement about how quickly things are communicated because this character, Rita Seeker, she's written a 900-page book in four weeks on Dumbledore and released it. It's like this big money grab, like find out about the real Dumbledore, the shady past, uh, reputation in tatters, not so noble after all, this sort of just smearing like, let's get all the dirt and the gossip on Dumbledore. And you know, a 900-page book, like, to, I mean, to read Infinite Jess, that's what, 1,100 pages, it takes about six weeks if you really, if you really push through it. And I wrote, what did I write? I wrote 70,000 words in two weeks, and that was about 150 pages. So if she's writing, if she's writing, you know, six, seven times that in four weeks, well, the statement there is that it, it's got to be trash. There's just no way that it could be correct. There's no way that you could follow up your journalistic uh, like what are, what are the parameters of journalism? I don't know. What are the what are, what are the guideposts or the rules of journalism? I don't know, but it's obvious that she hasn't followed them. It's obvious that there's no way that this could be a real piece of literature because she's written nine hundred page book in four weeks just to have the money grab of. Oh, Dumbledore's dead. Now let's make a book and cash in while it's a hot topic sort of thing. And we have this in our day and age, which is that, you know, the quicker you respond, the, the more first you are to, the, to commentating on current events. And this is the whole journal, this is the whole social, I don't want to say social sphere, what do you call it, the the media media routine the, the media sphere the news cycles it's all it's all geared to you've got to be first here's the first thing and now with the internet in this age we can just type it up and boom it's in the whole world so if we put that into a spectrum of well quick and fast on on the other end and then on the other side, we have, well, actually refined, carefully researched, well-worded, eloquently written, thoughtful, deep literature on the other. Then, well, the side that's on the news cycles, well, it, it's shallow. It lends itself to being shallow. It lends itself to being trashy. And we can say, well, there is truth there, there is information there, there is things we need to know or whatever. And that's true. It's not that one or the other is good or worse. And there's, of course, trashy literature. But this is just the statement that is made with this character and what she's doing in this part of our novel, in this part of the, 
What do we call it? Plot. Narrative. So Harry is trying to get the Dursleys to understand the magnitude of what's happening. And the Dursleys have to move house for their own safety. And there's this thing which is, Harry's wondering, will Voldemort come to sort of get a hostage, hostage situation of the Dursleys? Like, Dumbledore, uh, Voldemort's pretty powerful. He could easily just, you know, take, take the Dursleys and say, Harry Potter, if you don't come, I'm going to kill your family. And Harry's wondering, now, w- would I actually come and save them? And he sort of has this moment like, you know what? I don't know if I really care that much about them. I don't know if that would work. And the Dursleys really don't get it. They're sort of they're sort of at the stage where they see something is going on. So they know enough that they have to leave their house and they have to go along with Harry and his magic friends to follow their advice. But there's sort of this thing of, oh, you mean there's more than two Dementors out there? Because remember, Dudley had the attack on him of two Dementors. And Harry's just thinking, my goodness, there's a lot more than two Dementors out there. There's not not only two Dementors, but there's a whole army of them, and Death Eaters, and different creatures, and the Dark Lord himself. So we always get this idea of Harry being in the magic world, and never being able to translate any of it over to the Muggle world for his family. None, there's no crossover there. Whenever there's the slightest crossover, it's just drama. But at this end of the narrative, well, now Harry's carrying this darkness, this threat, this, this, this worry, this fear, and none of it's translating over to his family, and they just don't get it. If they even could fathom just part of what he's going through, well, things would be very different. And there's this awkward moment in the book where they're sort of saying goodbye, and it's like, well, what do you do when you say goodbye to someone you don't really like? And and maybe some people feel this. Maybe some adolescents feel this at the end of high school. They move out of home, and they they don't feel very happy about saying goodbye. And who knows? And Dudley sort of says, you know, holds out, holds out his hand and shakes Harry's hand and says, you know, you're not so bad after all, something like this. And Aunt Petunia just thinks, oh, isn't he wonderful? Oh, he has such a big heart. Oh, that was just one such a sweet thing to say, Dudley, like this. So there's still a bit of that going on. And then we have the auras or the, the the good guys turn up at Harry's house and he's there by himself. And it's his last night there. And they're all in this big group and they decide they're going to set decoys. So a whole bunch of people are going to drink this magic potion which makes them look exactly like Harry Potter. And this is well done in the movie. This is a really good part in the movie because they do the voiceovers and and Daniel Radcliffe picks up the 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 mannerisms and all the talkings and the the styles of each of the characters. And it really illustrates the difference between well the body 
and the interior world. And that's the insight there. All of a sudden we have these characters in the body of Harry, and yet their body posture is like how they were as their character. And their mannerisms, their whole, like, Hermione's like, oh, Harry, your eyesight really is bad. Something like this. And you see how different they are. When you can see, when you really notice it, you can see that there's something in the way a person holds themselves. It's one thing to have a body, and there's another thing to inhibit, in, inhabit, not inhibit, I believe. I mix my words up en- enough, you know that. To inhabit the body, to be in the body. And how you are in the body is a part of how you are in a bigger sense. And then we can also, well, what we often like to do is, well, what, what is this thing that's in the body? Is it the soul? Is it, is it the mind? Is it the self? Is it the spirit? What is it? Oh, it sounds all a bit spooky, doesn't it? Sounds a little bit like magic. And Harry gets on his motorbike with Hagrid or Hagrid's driving and they go off and there's an ambush waiting for them. And there's action, there's confrontation. And there's even a bit of a showdown between Voldemort and Harry. And there's something that goes on with Voldemort's wand. He's using a different wand. And it ends up not working for him. And here we start to see that there's something... Harry Harry learns that there's something funny about his wand and what Voldemort's wand is. So it's not only a connection between person to person, wizard to wizard, but there's also something in the wands. And they have a significant role to play before we finish. And after this, and everyone's got to safety, and everyone's come through, and they've made it to their hiding spot, Lupin, Harry's teacher, Harry's friend, sort of sits down with him, and he says something about one of the spells that he used in in the fight, in the getaway, which was the spell of Expelliarmus. And Lupin sort of says to him now, did they work out that you were the real Harry because you used that spell? Because there are all these other fake copy Harry Potters flying around as well. And then all of a sudden you use this spell, Expelliarmus, and then they all went after you. So is that how they knew you were the real Harry Potter? And he says, don't make it your signature move. And this is important to note because Lupin's sort of saying, like, we're at war. You need to use something a bit more strong. And you remember that, well, well, to, to be more technical, Expelliarmus, it's a spell that doesn't really, it doesn't really hurt who you use it against. It's a pretty tame it's a pretty tame spell, as as I understand it. It's it's more like a disarming spell, like to just just get your get the enemy's wand away from them, that sort of thing. 
And you remember that only a, a few short months ago, Harry used Sectrum Spentra, Sectrum Centra, which is a, is a dark spell that he learnt in this book by the Half-Blood Prince, and it had done a lot of damage. It had really hurt Malfoy. He'd really hurt him badly. And so here, now he comes, some time later has passed, and now he's in an actual war, and he's using a very weak, just a disarming spell. And that is an important connection. That's an important quality, which is growing in Harry. And it actually turns out to be critical for the moment of climax for this entire series. So Ron has a, a pet gall, which I think is some sort of mytho mythological creature which is sort of like what like a gremlin or something or a garden gnome or something like that and they use that to well stand as a dummy so that ron can be considered in one place when he's actually somewhere else so the gall is the pretend Ron, and they say, well, Ron's got this terrible disease. This is why he looks that way. And they do some magic tricks to make him look like Ron. And for Hermione, well, she puts a memory spell on her parents. And she actually, actually wipes their memory so much that they don't even remember that they had a daughter. And they move to a different country. They move to Australia down where I am right now. So it's a very it's a very tense moment. It's a very sad moment. It's a very dark moment when you realize you have to really just push someone completely away in order to protect them. When you're in so much danger and you have to remove yourself entirely from your family, well, that's really something that really shows what's at stake here. And there's also this moment where Ron gives Harry a book about girls. <laughs> and and I'm wondering, is there is there an innuendo here? Because I, I think it's Harry's birthday or something. That's right. It's Harry's birthday and Ron gets him this book and he says, it's not all about, it's not all about wand work. I think the book's called like 12 Failsafe Ways to Charm Witches, something like that. And I'm thinking, is J.K. Rowling making an innuendo there? Maybe I'm just reading too much into it. There is such thing as over-analysis. <laughs> but that's just a funny moment. And then Hermione, well, she's always having this thing as well. This is happening again and again where, you know, Ron... Harry and Hermione are sitting around and, and they're always thinking like, what, what could it be? Where could it be? And what information or what books have you read on Horcruxes or this and that? They're always pondering. They're always pondering this sort of thing. And as this goes on, all the time, Harry would say, oh, he did this or he says this in this book. And Hermione says, oh, well, it could have been a she. How do you know she didn't say it? Why are you saying he said it? 
And, well, that's just another comment of the feminism coming through. In And, it, and it's like a, it's an ABC feminism. It's an immature feminism, which is, which is like the, the immaturity of Hermione at this stage is starting to have to really hit the ground and run. Like she's really starting to have to grow up. It's one thing to have knowledge, and she is really smart. She's the smartest of the bunch, which I'll say again and again. But there's another thing about the maturity of understanding and what it means to integrate that knowledge into her life. So the other thing about Hermione, and this I think this is in the movie but not in the book, which is that they have this sort of battle, this little battle, or Hermione and, and Harry and Ron go to a cafe and some Death Eaters turn up and they, and they beat them, but she then has to do the spell on them to wipe their memory, which she had done on her parents. And there's a real dilemma expressed there in the movie of this character having to do one thing, doing the same thing to her loved ones as she's doing to her enemies. Now, what do you do in that situation? What do you do when you realize that what you're doing to your enemies is something you've already done to your family and your loved ones? And it's a very subtle moment. She sort of just, she just pauses for a moment right before she does it. And maybe some of the same sort of music comes up, the long, sad music or something. I don't know exactly how it's done in the movie, but I, I noticed that that connection was there. And, well, the Ministry of Magic turn up to the hiding place because Dumbledore's will has been released and he left things for Harry and his friends and we straight away get this feeling and throughout the whole interaction there's this thing of well the Ministry of Magic has you know why are they giving it to us now he died four weeks ago or something they should have given it straight away and Hermione sort of like well obviously they we're going over these things and you're doing all these spells on these things and trying different things to understand what they mean and all this sort of stuff, which further shows the corruption of the, the bureaucracy. And you can imagine this. Imagine, I mean, I, I've never, I don't think ever in my life I've had, I've been in someone's will. I might have for my grandma's. I think that was a pretty clear case, though. But the whole, what do you call it, settlement law or litigation law? I don't know. I don't know the terms. But the law surrounding wills, well, there's a lot of red tape in that. And there can be a lot of hurt between family members in that. And... Well, this just shows that there's a lot of red tape in the Ministry of Magic that isn't helping Harry and his friends. They're not on Harry's side. It's very clear that there's no way 
the establishment or the official establishment can be at their aid, even though it sort of, you'd think you could, you could see it as, oh, we're here to give you what you rightfully deserve from Dumbledore's will. But really, it's like, no, no, hand it over. Like, this isn't right. And Ron gets the light thingy, which Dumbledore had used in the very first novel, which was at the moment when he was dropping off Harry Potter to his new family, to his auntie and uncle. And he'd used it to take the streetlights in so that no one could see him around. And you can you see the symbolism there? Because Dumbledore, he was on the doorstep of Mr. Dursley's and he was gathering his friends. Professor McGonagall was there. And then Hagrid turns up. So we've got Hagrid, Dumbledore, and McGonagall. The three friends. In their time of need, Dumbledore's pulling them together. So the light comes in. And this prop, well, if we can race ahead a bit, we know what happens with this prop. Ron Ron leaves the trio. He leaves his friends. And it's when he needs to get back to them that he works out how to use this light machine, this light thingy. How to draw his friends back to him. And the poetic statement is there, well, your friends are your light to you. And in your time of need, you need something that will draw you all together. So it's a very, very beautiful prop. It's a very beautiful device. And Ron sort of gets it and he opens it up and tries it out and the lamp goes off and gone. He's sort of like, oh, cool. Great. What am I going to use? What am I going to use this for? I mean, I mean, Ron's not... I don't want to say Ron's dumb, and I don't know if now's the time to... I mean, the point of the, the scene is that he didn't know. He didn't know until much later. It seemed what seemed sort of just like a gimmick on the surface turned out to be of vital importance. And Harry gets the snitch, which he caught on his first Quidditch game at Hogwarts. And Hermione gets the children's book, which we'll talk about more of later on. And then there's also the Sword of Gryffindor. And this has been one of those props which is also important because it's something that can kill the Horcruxes. And I think at this stage in the novel they've even used it to kill a Horcrux, maybe? But they work this out later. Or maybe. I don't know where it is. Like, let's just, let's be timeless in how we we look at this. But the Minister of Magic is saying, well, this was in the will, but we're not giving it to you. And the kids are like, what are you talking about? It's in the will. It's for us. 
It should be Harry's. And the Minister of Magic then goes on to explain, well, actually we don't know where it is. And also there are a lot of different claims on it. So this is the this is the red tape of the, the will. Like who really owns something? You know, you've written it in a will. Let me contest the ownership of it. Just because it's in a will doesn't mean you own it. And Dumbledore's the sort of man, well, he's got a lot of complex relationships in his history. So that's an important prop that maybe we'll talk about again because we know that it keeps coming up in this book. So Harry and his friends, well, there's a wedding. There's a wedding of two friends in this hiding place and then it gets ambushed. And Harry and his friends have to make a quick getaway and they start their journey of they start their journey of well now we really are alone and they've made the resolve harry has long made the resolve that he's not going back to school this year he's going to do and that was the real oof that was the real deep resolve that he got when dumbledore died that was the real found, the newfound hero quality within him. And there's a bit of back and forth and Harry tries to leave by himself and then he comes back and then he waits and then he does more preparation and then he's sort of like, should I go with Ron and Hermione or not? And, and it comes out that, well, actually, yes, Ron and Hermione are going to come with you and we stick together as friends. And... They're sort of ambushed and they have to leave suddenly and they think, oh, great. We thought we had a few more days to plan and pack everything. And Hermione thinks, well, no, don't worry. I've got everything we need right here. I've been packed for weeks. And it's this bag which has been got this magic spell on it, which is, you know, very small. It's just a small purse, but it's so big. It can carry all these different books and whole libraries and all that they need, really. And we just think, wow, she's done it again. She really saves the day so many times. So they part ways and they decide to go to Harry's godfather's house, which had been Sirius Black's house, which had been the headquarters of the Order of the Phoenix. And they decide to hide out there for some time. And... Lupin turns up. And this is a quite a strange interaction that they have. Because Lupin is feeling... Well, he's feeling like he wants to help. He's sort of saying, y- Yes, I'm here. You know, what can I do for you? I, I can support you. This sort of, this sort of thing. And the, the trio are sort of thinking, Now what? What's really going on here? This is strange. This is sort of not the way that Lupin, who has helped in many ways before, it's not the way that he normally does help. That's not the way that he does actually go about it. And Harry senses there's something else going on here. Like, what? What of all the times and in all of the ways, something doesn't fit right. 
and it comes out and they have a bit of back and forth and they have a bit of an argument and it turns out that Lupin is actually regretting marrying this woman that he's with, his girlfriend, Tonks, I believe it is. And we're saying, well, what are you talking about? You're such a gorgeous couple. And Harry and his friends are thinking, this doesn't seem right. And then they argue some more. And then it turns out, well, actually, she's pregnant. And the significance is that Lupin thinks he's passed on his evil gene to another generation because Lupin is a werewolf which is a dark condition to have. It's it's considered an evil condition to have. And it's something that he struggles with. Just like Harry has things within him, well, now Lupin, remember this is is what we talked about when we were trying to work out what all the Hogwarts teachers have in common. There's, There's a duality in them. And this is Lupin's. Parents shouldn't leave their kids, says Harry. And Harry sort of says, now, which, which father, and you think you're the first father to have ever regretted handing on the human condition to someone else? And Harry's sort of saying, now, this is another heroic moment of Harry. He's saying, no, don't help us. This is just your defense from what you're running away from, and you really need to step up. Now Harry is being the more senior of the two. He's being the more wise of the two out of Lupin and Harry. And he's saying, go back and do your duty as a father. And this is a, ooh, this is a very, it's a very powerful statement coming from Harry Potter who never had a father. Whose father was killed when he was a child. So there's a lot of weight behind what Harry is saying. It's a very real wait and well this is something that every father has to contend with whether they're a werewolf or not because every every man has a darkness in him to varying degrees with varying colors in very various manifestations broadly speaking every man does have a darkness in him And the want for a child is very different for a man than it is for a woman. For a woman, well, she's got the whole biological thing. She's got her whole physical body and it's in time with her deep systems, her metabolism, her hormones, her sexuality, the, the shape of her body, how she carries her body. And there's a deep want in a woman to hold a child, to be creative And if this isn't too much of a tangent, we could even say that women are more creative in so many ways than men, even beyond that of just making babies. And we, with that logic, could say that, well, women are always making babies because they haven't been able to express their creativity in so many ways. And, well, I feel like this, where we're treading now is a bit, it's probably too far outside the scope of what we're discussing here and it's quite complex and deep and there's a lot of different traps on either side. So, uh, I mean, I every time I walk into these places which has 
landmines all around, I sort of feel like there would be a way to disarm them if we went all after all of them one by one. But sometimes it's easier just to back out slowly. So let's just back out and we say, well, a woman has a yearning to have a child and a man feels very differently about his yearning to be a father, if he does even at all yearn to be a father. We could argue that men don't really want to be fathers. And that yearning, well, it's in proportion to his understanding and his experience of the human condition. Because when a man fathers a child, what he's saying is, well, you're invited to what's going on here. I'm going to bring something into this existence. And if a man has a lot of darkness and a lot of pain and he's seen the evils and the torment of humanity, then he's less likely to feel that it's okay to bring someone into the world. And even here, even back here, I feel this is pretty explosive stuff and it's a pretty explosive scene to have Harry to to have this man turn up where Harry and his friends are and say oh I want to help you and then it comes out that actually no he regrets marrying this woman and this has been brought on because she's pregnant and this is tied into his own personal darkness, which is he that is that he is a werewolf. And the werewolf is just it's just a metaphor. It, it's all metaphors. What is a what is a metaphor? What 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 is a werewolf metaphorical for? Well, it's metaphorical for a man that is a good man in one situation and then a bad man in another situation. At one time, he's very nice and caring. And then in the other time, he's violent or just not very nice. And I mean, well, who isn't that? At at least some stages of their life. So the other thing I'll quickly mention now is that there's this tracking spell on Voldemort's name which means that if you say the the name Voldemort now up until this point it's sort of been like oh don't say it it's a bad thing to say oh he should not be named but now there's an actual spell on it which means people can trace you and see where you are if you use this word which was how the uh, the the hunters, the, the Death Eaters, or whoever it was that were hunting Harry and his friends, found them in the cafe. And there are words that ring alarm bells. There are words that, if you use, put you on the watch, certain, the, the watch of certain entities. And that's just a fact of the surveillance state that we live in. And our culture has, well, certain taboo words. 
And in this case, well, it's someone's name. And there are certain names throughout history that you have to be careful how you mention, how you bring them up at all. There are certain names that invoke a lot of unrest. So I think we'll wrap it up there. The next step is that Harry and his friends break into the Ministry of Magic. But we're getting almost to a good time now to finish up and we'll talk about that. We'll carry on with that next episode. But before we do anything else, what we can do right now is sit quietly. Which means being still with our eyes closed. I'll do it along with you. I always do it along as well. For just a few minutes. Just to meditate. And just to be peaceful. And that's all I have to say for now. <laughs>